Welcome to Office Hours, a podcast of Westminster Seminary, California, that takes you inside the seminary and face-to-face with our faculty. I'm Scott Clark. Today I'm talking with Mike Horton, J. Gresson Bachin Professor of Systematic Theology and Apologetics at Westminster Seminary, California. Co-host of the White Horse Inn and editor of Modern Reformation Magazine, Mike is the author of many books, and most recently, Christless Christianity and the Gospel-Driven Life. These titles are available through the bookstore at Westminster Seminary, California, wscal.edu slash bookstore. Hi, Mike, and welcome to Office Hours. Thanks, Scott. Great to be with you. So you have a new book, and it's called The Gospel-Driven Life. That's right. What does that mean? What what does it mean to say gospel-driven life? Well, you know, we can be. Uh, we need all sorts of things in life. We 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 need purposes. We need plans. We need programs. We need goals in life. Otherwise, you know, you, you don't make a goal. You're, you're certain not to reach it. Uh, we need all of that in our daily living. But the gospel is what drives us. We are directed as Christians by the Word of God in its precepts, its commands, its wisdom, its imperatives. We're directed by the law, but we are driven by the gospel. And so, taking off on that distinction between indicatives, God declaring what he's done for us in Jesus Christ, and imperatives, therefore present your bodies as a living sacrifice in, views of the mercy, in view of the mercies of God, that's sort of the, the uh, vision that I had for this book. How are people's Christian lives being driven now? What, what are you hearing from people? What do you know from experience, and what have you read? Well, in Christless Christianity, uh, I tried to document what I think is going on from people who know better than I do uh, about the trends. I think that uh, you have a number of of reasons for the gospel sort of being in the shadows today. One is that there is an outright uh, confusion of the gospel, uh, distortion of the gospel. And you see that, for instance, in the tendency to redefine sin in purely horizontal terms. So it's not uh, David's confession against you and you alone have I sinned, O Lord, in sin my mother conceived me. It is about horizontal relationships. Uh, Jesus came, therefore, not to free us from uh, the tyranny of our sins and the guilt of our sins and the wrath of God. Uh, Wrath? What wrath? No, he, he came to pick up the broken pieces and put our lives back together and heal us and transform us and to help us live transforming relationships with each other. Now, again, all of that is—that's the fruit. That's mm. the outcome. I don't mean to deny the importance of, of inner renewal and transformation, but that's the fruit. And what we're doing very often is saying, the stuff that, that, that we do is the gospel. So there are obvious distortions, but I think what happens more in our circle, Scott, is assuming the gospel. We say, mm-hmm. well, people needed to hear the gospel when they got saved. Maybe they needed to hear the gospel in a time of crisis. They're, you know, uh, just got news that they have cancer. They need to hear the gospel. But an average Christian coming every week, week in, week out? That's a little much. And that's because they're thinking of the gospel as a slogan, uh, something on a t-shirt, some fortune cookie phrase, the four spiritual laws, or an altar call. You're calling people forward to make a decision. 
that's preaching the gospel every week. No, preaching the gospel every week means doing what Jesus did, showing how he was the center of all of Scripture, and even though he is sometimes out of the scene, Hmm. like any central character, you know the plot congeals around him, regardless of whether he's in every scene or not. He's always there. He's always there. The gospel is always in view when we are called to live the Christian life. We don't live the gospel. Jesus' Jesus' life, death, and resurrection constitute the gospel. Our lives are lived out of a response to that gospel. That was my next question, just so that there's no ambiguity about what we're saying here and what you're saying. When you say gospel, you, in this context, you mean something very specific. So articulate briefly Mm -hmm. what it is exactly you mean by gospel so that people know, well, okay, I'm hearing the gospel, or they can have some standard by which to evaluate what it is they're hearing. As you know, Scott, you have to do that today. Uh, I mean, you always have to do that, but especially when you have gospel music, uh, gospel publishing houses, gospel this, gospel that. Everything today that that we think is worthy for Christians to talk about or do, we call the gospel. Yeah. The gospel, the, the term euangelion comes from the language of the battlefield, where the, the king would triumph uh, over the enemy and then send the ambassador back to the capital to announce to the people victory on the battlefield. And that's where we get this, this word, good news. It has a very specific context. Now, uh, when that ambassador came and announced that to the capital, the people didn't say, ah, they slap each other on the back and say, we did a pretty good job of redeeming uh, redeeming the culture, didn't we? Or we, we did a pretty good. Uh, that I can't believe we pulled that off. Uh, no, they received it as news because it was done by somebody else for them. For them, and so anything that we do isn't the gospel. Anything that we feel isn't the gospel. Anything that we experience isn't the gospel. The gospel provokes new feelings and experiences and transformed lives. But precisely because it isn't about me and what I feel and what I experience. The gospel is, a, is an external word. It's an announcement that comes to us, not something that wells up within us. The uh, tendency to redefine everything that we do, experience, want as the gospel comes out of laudable motives, and that is people want, pastors want, elders want, churches want, Christians want uh, Christians to be sanctified, matured, uh, mature, transformed. Talk a little bit about the paradox of getting to the goal of a transformed life, a Christ-like life, but getting there in a way that is unexpected Mm-hmm. And and uh, as I say, somewhat paradoxical. You you really can't get there on a straight line. You have to get there through the cross and through uh, something that doesn't seem to exactly be designed to produce the end. Yeah, look at what uh, Paul said to the Corinthians. Here you have an immature church that just mirrors the narcissistic, selfish, arrogant, materialistic Corinthian culture around it. And uh, sometimes they just get together and do it together as Christians. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it, it is a 
church in complete and total disarray. Paul didn't come in and say, well, you know, you have the creeds because I taught you. I taught you well. And he does tell them he taught them well, Hmm. and they received it. He doesn't say, you know, you know the gospel, you have the creed, but you need the deeds. Hmm. Rather, his, his fallback strategy when he is facing disorder in the moral life of Christians is to is to assume that they don't really get the gospel yet. Hmm. And so right there in 1 Corinthians, he starts out by telling them that they are sanctified in Jesus Christ. Uh, wow, it sure doesn't look like it. Well, you are, doggone it. <laughs> <laughs> Believe it or not. Believe it or not, Christ is your righteousness. Uh, that's why when I was with you, I preached nothing but Christ and him crucified. Now, a lot of people would probably say, you could imagine... Uh, some of Paul's enemies saying, well, yeah, that was a problem. That's what Pelagius thought when he came to Rome and yeah. saw the disillusion of the city and thought, well, that's because of all these people running around listening to Augustine, yeah. preaching grace, 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 Christ crucified, Christ crucified, Christ crucified. People need to clean up their lives for Pete's sake. Mm-hmm. Well, Paul does get around to giving pretty stern imperatives. Mm-hmm. He, he knocks them around a little bit, but only after... He has told them, look, this is who you are in Christ. Now, you people, get your act together. Live in a way that is in accordance with who you are in Jesus Christ. If we just assume that people know who they are in Jesus Christ, we're crazy. All of the statistics say otherwise. We are in, we, we've been told for 20 years now by leading sociologists, by pollsters, that most American evangelicals, not to speak of Protestants generally, hmm. don't even know uh, uh, who delivered the Sermon on the Mount, raised in evangelical churches, and they can't define justification. They, they couldn't tell you what Christ did on the cross. Uh, in many cases, they don't—you they, they, throw out really basic terms that any average layperson would have known two or three generations ago. People— raised in so-called Bible-believing churches are at a complete loss. What happens when we're at a complete loss? We, go, we default to, God, to law talk, hmm. that we, we default to Oprah, we default to be a better you. We default naturally not to that strange, odd, too good to be true, I don't know, the I can't believe that gospel. We turn from that into ourselves, and we look for good advice, not good news. That's our default setting, and until, until you and I, you know, we, all of us here, we try to drill this into our students. Do not assume that your people get the gospel. You don't either. Assume that they get the law. Hmm. doesn't mean you don't preach it. It just means if you're going to assume something, assume that they already know that they, they really should be nice to each other. Assume that they know they should love God and their neighbor, but never assume that they really get deep down in their bones, from Genesis to Revelation, the unfolding plot of our redemption in Jesus Christ. What is the consequence of, or the result of, preaching, teaching, pressing people on the law without first getting the gospel? What is the effect of that? Uh, if you if people don't understand the problem, they'll never get the solution. This is this is why the law comes first of all to to level us. The law comes and I can I can uh, 
I, I watch it in my children, and I, I get angry, and then I realize that mm. I'm just like them. We weren't going to say that. But yeah, okay. thank you. <laughs> I didn't mean to do that, or but he pushed me. But 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 yeah, we're so good at that. And now I've got God's lawyer standing up there, yeah. reading me the charges charges against me, and it's a little different. Now I'm in the dock, and I don't get to prevaricate and spin, uh, but my lawyer is also my redeemer, okay. my mediator. And what are the spiritual consequences for the Christian when the minister, meaning well, right, aiming to produce sanctity in the life of the people, gives them the law, the ought, without first giving them the gospel? What happens to those people when when this what they get is a steady diet of either soft moralism, you know, uh, 10 steps to a happy life, and of course I'm not happy, therefore I'm not meeting the law, or, you know, sort of straight law preaching. But in the absence of the gospel, what happens mm-hmm. to those people? They either become self-righteous or they despair. Mm. And, uh, you know, you see that all over the place, a lot of burnout out there. You ever had any conversations with folks that have been in that circumstance? Never, never. I- I've heard of them. I've heard of them. Uh, yeah, I've been in those situations. You know, when I was a kid growing up, uh, I I got uh, a lot of the at least you aren't going to live a victorious Christian life if you don't step into this higher life. So you'll be a second class Christian. You'll get be a second class Christian, and uh, it, you know the it was mind blowing to me. Not just justification, but the 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 way that the scriptures talk about sanctification was mm-hmm. mind blowing to me when Paul says. Not, uh, okay, you carnal Christians, just realize that, that you, know, you, you might be uh, saved, but you'll be singed. Mm. You, know, you, might, <laughs> you might make it to heaven, but you're going to lose your crowns. Uh, you better try your best to not let sin reign in your mortal bodies. No, he says, how can you yeah. live as if sin were your master? when in fact it is not. And so he goes back, the gospel, Paul believed the gospel was big enough for sanctification too, not just justification, Mm. but for sanctification. So you are in Christ, therefore you are justified, and the dominion of sin over your life has been definitively toppled. Mm. Well, that's good news. Now you're telling me something that is not a, a goal for me to achieve. It's not, it's not a higher level of Christian commitment and life I am to enter. I'm simply, like all other Christians, the recipient of a victory accomplished by Jesus Christ 2,000 years ago, and now I just need to live in the light of that. What is the good news for someone who is in the midst of a, a serious struggle with sin? Um, they've committed the sin, they've they've grieved over it, they've repented, and they've committed it again, and uh, they're guilty, and they're not living the victorious life. And maybe they're thinking of saying, well, maybe I'm not really a Christian, maybe I should just quit. Uh, you know, after all, I sort of enjoy this sin. What, what do you have to say to them? Uh, I take them back to Romans 7. Uh, I would say, first of all, uh, you know, if if uh, Calvin has has a great pa- uh, piece of pastoral advice on this in the Institutes, where he says, use the law lawfully as a pastor. Uh, know 
who you're talking to. If you're talking to the obstreperous who believe that they have a right to practice this sin, uh, they uh, either because they think that it's not a sin or because they think that justification means that they don't have any obligation to obey God, then give them a big swat of the law hmm. and read those passages from Paul where he says that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But if you're talking to someone who is struggling with these sins and knows that they're wrong, believes that they're wrong, wrestles with their sinfulness, that's evidence that, that they are the people Paul identified as himself in Romans 7. You know, part of a dwindling number of people who believes Romans 7 is actually about Paul <laughs> and his experience. Uh, By the way, Pelagius denied that, too. I was just reading yeah. Pelagius's commentary. Did on he Romans. really? Yeah. Well, I, I can't imagine why he would yeah. embrace it. Yeah. I mean, if, if you say, I can understand there are people out there who think for exegetical reasons uh, that's not Paul, but if you say for theological reasons it can't be Paul. And we know ahead of time, before we ever get to the text, that it a priori couldn't be Paul. Because this can't describe a Christian. Well, actually, Paul is describing the normal Christian life. I, uh, there's a great quote from the Scottish preacher of the, I think it was the 18th century, Alexander White, hmm. who uh, said from his high pulpit, pointing his bony finger down to his congregation, as long as you're under my charge, you'll never leave Romans 7. <laughs> <laughs> but we have to remind our, our congregation that they'll also never leave Romans 6, and or, they'll never leave Romans 8. Yeah, there you go. See, you've got Paul. Is, that's why it has to be about Paul and the Christian experience, because he's just described it in chapter 6. The Christian is definitively new. Sin's dominion has been toppled, therefore live in the light of that. Well, does that mean that I'll never sin again? I can live, I can, I can live above all known sin. Yeah. No, here's how it looks down on the ground. In practice. In practice in Romans 7. And then by the, you, you know, you're about to slit your wrists at the end of Romans 7. And then he raises your eyes back to Christ and says, you know, who will deliver me from this body of death? Oh, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Therefore, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And then he goes on to talk about the future victory that we have in the resurrection and glorification up ahead, for which the Holy Spirit now is already a deposit. God has given us the Holy Spirit to sort of hold the property hmm. to as a down payment, and he's not just sitting there sort of like a, a money deposit. He is actively renovating us until finally we are freed from sin uh, in the future. So all of that is—I grew up with, you know, you're a Christian. Uh, are you a Roman 6 kind of Christian living in victory, or are you a Roman 7 Christian living in defeat? No. Paul is saying every Christian in every moment is simultaneously a Roman 6 Christian and a Roman 7 and a Roman 8 Christian. Yeah. Now, do you think—I have sometimes thought that um, Americans have a special connection to the higher life, Keswick, second blessing, a two-tier approach to Christianity. You have those who, are, who have achieved the victorious life and those who have not yet achieved the victorious life, because I, I think that Americans tend to believe by default 
that uh, there are some that have it and some that don't, and, and there's a secret passageway from those who don't to those who do. Mm-hmm. Maybe it was the way I was raised, but... Uh, it's a lot of shelves in your local Christian bookstore. How do... How to step into that. Exactly. There are you know, three steps to the victorious life, ten steps. Well, uh, practice the spiritual disciplines, or here are the uh, four steps to victory, or... Yeah, I mean, I my my mom, God bless her, she had a lot of other good books, but the bookshelf was filled with how to live the victorious Christian life kind of literature. Well, so what is the the real Christian life? If the victorious Christian life, the second blessing, the two-tier approach to Christianity is false, how what, what do we have to say then about the actual ordinary Christian life? How is it lived and where is it lived? Has God given us any help, practical, real material help in this world to muddle through. Tons. But see, here's the, here's the difference. The big difference is monastic spirituality that runs from, you know, your, your, your medieval contemplative monastic tradition to the radical Anabaptists, well, to the Anabaptists generally, uh, to pietism, basically keeps you focused on your individual, private, personal walk with the Lord. My soul. Your soul. And the emphasis today on the spiritual disciplines is no different. Uh, It's not a radical innovation. It's just part of that, the emergent movement that focuses us on what would Jesus do over what has, has Jesus done. It's all part of that heritage. Then over here, you have the heritage of the New Testament and and the Reformation that says, hey, look, enough about you. Christ has taken care of everything. Trust in his merits. That's taken care of. Calvin had a great exchange with Cardinal Satellito, and he told, he told the cardinal, whom he seemed to appreciate, he was in places affectionate toward this cardinal, he says, I don't think you've ever had a real spiritual crisis in your life. Because people who really have died and gone to hell, it's kind of a Luther-like comment, really know that either they are just going to give up on it all, or they, they need a Savior outside of them. They don't, need, they don't just need a helper, it someone to, to carry them part way so that they can do the rest by themselves. Yep. People who know, who've seen the law face-to-face, who know what it is, know what it says, and know what it implies, and know the God who is revealed in that law, those people then know themselves, right? what they Truly. really are, Truly. deep down inside, and then they are ready for a real Savior who isn't a partial Savior, who isn't a helper, but who really saves completely. Yeah, exactly. And then Calvin tells the Cardinal, once you let go of yourself and you stop worrying and fretting over your own soul, for Pete's sake, you look outside of yourself in faith toward God and out to your neighbor in love. Mm. And so, you know, Martin Luther uh, famously said, you know, where, where do your good works go then? Out to your neighbor. God doesn't need your good works. Your neighbor does. I love that line. Mm. God's fine. God will be okay if you don't fix his roof. He's self-sufficient. He's self-sufficient. Uh, you don't need to build him a house. <laughs> you know, But your neighbor's roof might be leaking. Your, your neighbor's roof might be leaking. And God wants to fix your neighbor's roof through you. And that is why you get the, the, the active impulse in Protestant, uh, out of the Reformation. That's why you get 
what historians call the Protestant work ethic. That's mm-hmm. why you get this emphasis on vocations. So while while the Pietist evangelical mystical tradition focuses our, uh, us on ourselves and our private how we, how are we doing today? The 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 gospel frees us from clinging to our works and clinging to our experience and fretting over our souls and fastens our our eyes on Jesus in faith and then our good works go out to our neighbors in love anybody who 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 says that that reformation christianity leads to passivity doesn't know the reformation doesn't know those French martyrs who left Geneva and went back to to France <laughs> or to, Brazil or to preach and to <laughs> preach the gospel uh, and to to plant churches and did so at the risk and often the cost of their lives would be surprised to find out that they were passive. Well, and also the ordinary Christian who went to those churches every yeah. every week and then went out into their vocations and said, look, my goal here isn't to convert everybody. My goal here isn't to— At work. At work. My goal here isn't to show people how pious I am. My goal here isn't to you know, have my Bible open and to pray at every spare moment so people will see me and they'll know that I'm a Christian. That's what it means to be salt and light in the world. Hmm. No, it meant, as Luther said, make a good shoe and sell it at a fair price. Love and serve your neighbor. That is— that is wonderfully liberating. That's mm. where our good works, that's where our Christian life is lived. If you want to ask a Reformation Christian, well, don't you believe in sanctification? We're going to talk about marriage. Mm. We're going to talk about our secular vocations. We're going to talk about our relationships with our, our parents, our children, our extended family, our neighbors. And a lot of people are going to say, well, that's not—I I don't hear you talking much about sanctification. Well, we're talking about <laughs> sanctification all the time. Yeah. But where God has placed us, it just doesn't for have that to be worked out. It just doesn't have a monastic assumption behind it. Right. But now that's not to say that we don't believe, and you're not counseling that Christians don't need to gather in the communion of the saints. You're saying the exact opposite. We live our Christian life out of that communion of the saints, where God comes to us and meets us in the gospel that's preached to us, that comes to us and feeds us. In the Lord's Supper. That's where we get gospel-driven. Every week, every Lord's Day, there are imperatives too, certainly direction, clear direction uh, from God's Word. We preach the whole counsel of God, but we come to church primarily to have our sails filled again with the wind of the gospel, to push us out into the ocean of the world through another week. It's the, that, that whole business of the indicative leading to the imperatives— Mainly, not all, but mainly where we fulfill the imperatives Hmm. happens in the world. Where we hear the indicatives happens almost exclusively in the church. Oprah's not going to tell us about the indicatives. She's not going to tell us what God has done to save us. If we don't hear that constantly and regularly in the church, we're not going to hear it anywhere. So that's why it's so important for the pastor and the elders to get this right, because when God's people gather together on the Lord's Day— you know, that's the one time and the one place where they can hear what they need to hear. Right. If we surrender that day to the market, we surrender that day to entertainment, we surrender that day to this passing evil age, then how will the powers of the age to come, which Hebrews says come through the Word and the sacraments, mm. penetrate us? How will we become new creatures 
if the the spirit in the in the powers of the age to come isn't bringing the gifts from the ascended Christ to his people. And where else do they gather together to encourage one another, to love yeah. one another, uh, bear one another's burdens? Because you have a lot of broken, needy, sinful people who you know have only really one, in that sense, one society, yeah. as Calvin calls it, to which they are bound and in which they are baptized. And not only spiritually bound, but even materially bound. Yeah. There's that... that Helping one another. Helping one another, the diaconal ministry. Feeding one another. Hospitality yeah. to strangers. I, I, all of that is—see, that's where our focus is. That's where the focus of Christian living is in the New Testament. It is not primarily on me and my personal relationship with Jesus. And nor is it on transforming the culture, right? right. It's in the congregation and then living like Christians during the week out of that assembly, out of that grace, out of the sacraments, out of the fellowship. And uh, Absolutely. And so the, the, Absolutely. the gospel-driven life, then, is a rich, Christ-centered, sacramental life. Right. Absolutely. And it drives us out into the world through the week to be Christ's disciples where we are. We don't have to—we uh, thank God for missionaries who are called to the ends of the earth, but we can we can be disciples of Christ right where we are and gather each Lord's Day uh, to be resalinized. I, uh, you know, we're called the salt, but yeah. Jesus says, what happens if the salt loses its savor? I think of the church as a salinization plant. It's the place where uh, the salt that is throughout the week losing its saltiness comes back to become salt again. Mm. That That's why it, it, it is absolutely indispensable for us to come back and know who we are in Jesus Christ again. Oh, okay, that's right. That's right. Okay. Yeah. And then go out and live it in the world. To get reoriented. Yeah. So for those who are concerned about a, a high doctrine of the Christian life, your advice is then first get the gospel right. Absolutely. Otherwise, you know, it, look, if you're looking for moral transformation as an end in itself, if you're just if that's all you're looking for, you're not you you want to be a better you, you don't want to be a part of the new creation. Hmm. So they then, don't they really don't have a high enough view of the Christian life. Absolutely. I, there's a great line uh William Ames Puritan writer said that uh, the, the believer in his Christian life is marked by the spirit warring against the flesh. Mm. The unbeliever in his life is marked by the flesh striving against the flesh inordinately desiring. <laughs> I, and that's a fancy way of saying, yeah. basically, I'm getting too fat. I can't get in my jeans. I got to exercise. I got to go on a diet. I drink too much. Self I smoke too much. I, yeah. you know... That is the sort of thing that an unbeliever can curb. You don't need the gospel for that. Yeah, self-improvement. You don't need the gospel. You need Susie Ormond to help you yeah. with your finances. You don't need the gospel uh, to help you get your credit card debt under control. You need the gospel, though, if you want to be a new creature, if you want to be a citizen of the new creation. We've been talking with Mike Horton. We're discussing his new book, The Gospel-Driven Life, and you can find that at the bookstore at Westminster Seminary, California, at wscal.edu slash bookstore. That's wscal.edu slash bookstore. Well, Mike, thanks for taking some time out of your very busy schedule, and I know this will make a great gift for the Christmas season and 
just about any time. Thanks a lot, Scott. That's it for this edition of Office Hours. Thanks to our producer, Robert Riccio, to Katie Wagonmaker in the bookstore, to Young Me for graphics, and to Adam Klaus for technical assistance. We'll be back next time for another episode. You can listen to Office Hours online at wscal.edu slash office hours, or subscribe and download it to your iPod or MP3 player. Go to wscal.edu slash office hours. We want to hear from you. Email us at office hours at wscal.edu. That's office hours, one word, at wscal.edu. For more information about this program or about Westminster Seminary, California, please visit us online at wscal.edu or call us at 888-480-8474. That's online at wscal.edu or call us at 888-480-8474. Copyright 2009, Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved. You are permitted to reproduce and distribute this material in any format, provided that you do not alter the wording in any way and that you do not charge a fee beyond the cost of reproduction. For web posting, a link to our website is preferred.